Welcome to the audio podcast of The Father's House. We hope and pray you are both challenged and encouraged by this time in the Word. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. I do believe the Holy Spirit is going to speak to some people today. And so I want to pray right out of the gate that your heart would be open to hear from the Lord. And uh, we're going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about failure. More importantly, we're going to talk about how to recover, how to get back up. And uh, so let's, let's ask for God's grace to be on these precious moments we share. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your house. I thank you for your people. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are right here in this room. You are at all locations. You're at every prison right now. And you've come to, to show us how much you love us. And uh, we rest in your love. And we ask that in the next few moments that eternities would change and lives would be changed We honor you. We welcome you here. We say, Holy Spirit, this is your meeting, not ours. Jesus, you're the head of your church. And we honor your word today. And we say, be Lord of all. In Jesus' great name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. So we've been in this series all long, After God's Heart, a study in the life of David. We've looked at David from being a shepherd boy to now the king of Israel. And I want to read together the key text. And we haven't done this for a bit, but we're going to lift up our voices and all read together. So this will come up on the full screen and read it out at all locations. Ready? Let's go. God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now, amen. Today, we're actually going to talk and read about David's greatest recorded sins and failures, the flawed areas of his heart, which means this. You can be a woman of God, a woman after God's own heart. You can be a man after God's own heart and still have some patches of your life where your heart goes astray, seasons of failure and pain, but it doesn't shift the overarching theme of what God has called you to be, and we're going to see that. But here's the big question. In the seasons of failure of your life and when your heart betrays you, will you allow that season to define you, or will you get back up? And we all have our own way of categorizing failures from, you know, the big top five down to little failures and little sins, and The Bible has quite a bit to say about sin, and sin actually means, the Greek word, it means to fall short. It means there's a mark that I need to hit, and I can't reach it on my own. So here's a visual. God's holiness and his standard is way up there, and on my best day, being my most holy Dave, I can pull off. Righteous do Dave, I'm way down here. The gap between is sin, and all have sinned. That's why all need a savior. And so today we're going we're gonna to talk about how God continues to rescue those who fall. And when you're, let's say you're a Christ follower, you've been walking with him for a while and you go through a season where your heart betrays you and you find failure is your lot. How do you recover from that failure? I want to read, before we go to the story of David, I want to read the gospel to you in three verses. Now, for you note takers, those of you that feel like it's time to share your faith, you got to get these three verses in your arsenal, all right? Get these in your pouch because when someone asks you about what you believe, never underestimate, first off, the power of your testimony. Just, Just tell somebody what God did in your life. Remember the blind guy in the Gospels? They're like, hey, what did this Messiah and who's Messiah? And he said, hey, I don't know. All I know is I was blind and now I can see it's a good day. When you tell your, uh, your friends and family, people in your world, your I was blind, now I can see story, it has power. 
But then let's say you want to move over to the theology of salvation. And that's where you're like, oh, let me think. Well, I guess we should start at Genesis. Uh, there was a snake and there's an apple. And then things go horribly wrong after that because you get to Leviticus. You're like, you give up. So let me give you three verses that it's the gospel right here. Romans chapter 3, verse 22. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. For everyone has sinned. Okay, there it is. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, everybody just say, yet God, out loud. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sin. That is the gospel. So as we read about the life of David and some of the sin uh, he went through in his life, we're going to find that adultery was in his top 10. Murder was in his top 10. Now, I want to say right out of the gate that maybe adultery is not on your resume. Maybe murder is not on your resume of sin and failure. But as we preach, as we speak today, we are in all 35 prisons across this great state of California. And let me just speak to the Prison Church Network right now, because many of you guys are, are doing a time and your sentence is for uh, the crime of murder. I want to say something straight to you today, that this verse, Romans 3.22, is for you. You are made right with God because of what Christ Jesus has done, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. Listen. Your title is not what you've done, all right? Your label is not your crime. Your label is not your sentence. You are who Jesus has made you because of the cross. You are a son of God. You're a daughter of the king. You are not your past. You are not your failure. And that's true for everybody across the board, amen? And today, Prison Church Network, all locations on the stream here in this room, whatever your failure has labeled you, okay, so maybe it is adultery, or maybe a divorce is haunting you, or a sin you committed in your past, or a season you went through. I want to invite you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to lay down that label at the foot of the cross. Because in Jesus Christ, you are not what your past determines you should be in your future. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus, and he wants to write over your life, righteous, son of God, daughter of the Most High. Come on, beloved, that's who you are. Now, Paul told his son in the Lord, Timothy, he said, I want you to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. And in our culture, in our generation, the, the reading out loud of Scripture in church has diminished over the last few decades, at least on my watch. Until now, pastors and preachers will get up and do a 30-minute speech and really never reference the Word of God. We don't do that here at the Father's house. We read a lot of Bible because it's got a lot more power than my opinion and commentary. Come on, somebody. But today we're going to read the story, and I, I want you to hear the, the, the Holy Spirit breathing through the story because the Word of God is alive and powerful as we read about David's failures. We're going to start out here in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However... David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking out on the roof of the palace. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. 
And David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, brief and powerful, I am pregnant. Wow, how things escalated quickly in those five verses, did they not? Now, obviously, the scripture leaves out some details and timelines, and if you read it, it kind of sounds like David just woke up from a nap, slept with the neighbor's wife, she gets pregnant, he's having a baby, it all just kind of happened in a day. But how many know sin and the trap of sin doesn't work like that? You don't wake up happily married and end up in an adulterous affair by dinner. It doesn't happen that way. I shall. You, you, you don't wake up, you know, one day and it just have some, some gummy bears and end up on heroin the next day. Wait, is, is it the gateway drug? I don't know. I just offended a bunch of people. I felt it. We'll work it out later. You don't have a glass of wine one day and end up a raging alcoholic the next, right? There is a process that takes place, a mental, an emotional, a spiritual road that we walk down that I believe David walked down. Conjecture, but I believe it wasn't the first time he stood out on the veranda and overlooked the ladies on the rooftops. There was something that took him out. This is the nature of sin. But here's the problem. When we start neglecting our responsibilities in order to accommodate our lust, we're setting ourselves up for a great fall. You see, in the spring of the year is the time when kings go to war every spring. And that's just how they did it. They would go out and claim new land and fight their opponents. And David should have been at war, but he's at home in the palace setting himself up for a fall. If he would have been where he was supposed to be, when he was supposed to be there, he would have avoided a very dark chapter of his life. Now, I know that's hindsight and it's preemptive, but I just thought I'd throw it out there for a little preemptive wisdom for y'all. As it says in Proverbs 27, 12, a wise person foresees danger and takes precautions. The simpleton or the fool goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. Now, now David, although he was far from a fool, he had great seasons of foolishness, and we're reading about one right now. And we all have the propensity to step into these seasons of foolishness. Now, David finds himself in a real bind, right? He got the note that said, I'm pregnant. Uh, he's committed the sin of adultery, and he could have fixed it right here. He could have went to God and repented and then went to Bathsheba and repented for what he did to her and then went to her husband Uriah the Hittite and dealt with the consequences at this level. But he decides to cover over these sins with a whole new level of sin. And it gets deeper. Let's move on. Then David sent word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, hey, man, just go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he'd left the palace. But Uriah did not go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. And when David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? And Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. And Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to, to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. 
But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Now, now David's in full-blown deception. The web is getting woven even stronger, and he's layering his sin with now an evil plot. And by the way, just a side note, this is how unrepentant sin works. It will keep reeling you in. Sin will take you deeper than you plan on going and keep you there longer than you planned on staying. And that's what we see in the life of David. Keep moving here. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. Can I pause right there? Look at that detail. Maybe you haven't seen this. David was a close friend of Uriah. This wasn't just some soldier out in the cuts that he never heard of. There's a list of mighty men. In Israel, there were hundreds of thousands of soldiers, but only 37 men were David's close companions, his mighty men. They fought shoulder to shoulder. Uriah the Hittite was one of them. So this is his close friend. And David was so bound in his deception, as deception works, that he hands him a letter with the king's seal on it, so Uriah would not open it. But inside that letter was his very death sentence. And the plot thickens. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so he'll be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the, excuse me, the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. So the messenger went to Jerusalem, gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said. And as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Now, at this juncture in the story, it looks like David has got away with it. He pulled off the crime of the century. So Uriah is killed in battle. It looks like an innocent event that happened consistently in battle. No one knew there was a plot for murder. Now he brings home um, Bathsheba to the house and she has a going to have a son and nobody, nobody knows whose son it is and it looks like it all kind of swept the mess under the rug. But there's a prophet by the name of Nathan and Nathan has a messenger show up to the palace and says, hey, the prophet Nathan has a message for you and Numbers chapter 32 says this, be sure your sins will find you out. And the words of Jesus in Luke 12, what you do in secret will be shouted from the housetops. And so this began to to play out. And so let's read the encounter with Nathan, chapter 12. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. 
And one day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. This is the original you to man. It's right here. Oh, you to man. That's where they got it. Right there. Nathan points at him and says, you're the man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel, saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord, done this horrible deed? For you've murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you've despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. Wow, what a movie plot this is, right? Now, there were consequences to David's sin. There always is. Nobody, listen, listen, nobody escapes Galatians 6, 9. What you reap, you sow. That's a spiritual law. You can't avoid it just like gravity. And so David had rape and incest and betrayal from his own son and death in his family because of the sins he committed. But I, you can read about those. That's not where I want to land today. I want to ask this question. How does David recover from this season? How does he get back up, find favor again in the eyes of the Lord? How do you even start to unravel this mess and become the man after God's own heart when you have a failure at this level? Now, the short answer is obviously the unreasonable, amazing, overwhelming grace of God. God's grace is so powerful that even on our worst day, he's planning for your redemption. Even during your greatest failure, he's already seeing the way that you can recover. But here's what I want to talk about. David has some particular responses to the dealings of God during the darkest season of his life that caused his restoration. And I want to share those with you because reaping a harvest for a season and defining a life are two separate different things. And the problem with many of us is we tend to stop during the reaping season. We settle down and let our greatest failure become our identity. And we wear that label of shame. We wear that season and we never get back up and realize that God's calling us up. He's your biggest fan. He's saying, don't stop there. You don't live there anymore. You're not what your past failure determines and labels you. You're a son and daughter of God, so act like one, right? Now, as of this month, Don and I have lived in Vacaville for 25 years. And during that 25 years, the Lord has blessed us to live in four different homes. And I had the same experience at every home, but one I vividly remember, and maybe you've done this. If you live in a house for years, like I lived in Menlo Court for seven years, and then you move out of that house, but you live in the same town, guess what you're going to do on any given day? You're going to leave your office and drive back to your old house. It's just going to happen. So I leave the church office, I think, and I, I drive back. And I live over on Adrian Court, but I drive to Menlo Court on the other side of town. And I pull up, da, 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 and I think, oh, Donna must have some friends over, extra cars here. And I even get out of the car, and then I realize, oh, this is not my house. Those are not my cars. Now, how crazy would it have been if I thought, well, you know, I'm here now. I'll just go in, plop down on their recliner, and see if they got any chips. Right? But that's what some of you do. 
You drive back to the old house, the old ways, the old habits, saying, well, I'm here now. I'll just settle down on the couch of sin and eat the chips. Hey, you don't live there. You don't live there. Get back in the car and drive on to your new location in Jesus' name. So let me give you three responses in the next few minutes of how to get back up. This is what David did. Number one, David kept the door open to the prophetic voice. He kept the door open. So here's the key for you. Stay in proximity to the word of the Lord. You know, David was sensitive to the Holy Spirit. He loved being in the presence of God. And now he's living with this shame and this distance. And there was that knock on the door. And they said, the prophet Nathan wants to see you. And David could have said, hey, The last person I want to see is a prophet of God. Shut the palace doors. He had the authority as king to not allow the prophet to come in, but he allowed the prophet to come in and rebuke him and present truth to him so that he might find a place of repentance. You know, when God reveals your brokenness, reveals your sin by his word, it's never to shame you. God's goal is never to say, look what you've done. Look at the mess you've made, you sinner. And any church that does that, that is not the spirit of grace. I don't know about you, but the train wrecks in my life, I don't need anybody to point out that I made a wreck. I I made the wreck. I'm in the wreck. I can't feel my legs. And you're like, you're in a wreck. Of course I'm in a wreck. I need a rescue. I need someone to bring a word of encouragement and hope and tell me, hey, I know you're messed up right now, but the Lord comes to say, there is a way out, but you got to open yourself up to the word of God. Here's what I've noticed, because over the years, I've had the opportunity and the responsibility to deal with a lot of people that were train wrecking their life, and I've talked to a lot of married folks and men that were having affairs and many that committed adultery, and here's what I've seen. Those who want to get back with God, they stay in proximity to the word. But those who want to live in their sin, here's what happens. See, the prophetic word, which is really the proclaimed word of God, it's going to come through the preaching for sure, but it's going to come through your friends. It's going to come through your small group leader, your accountability group. And if you don't want to get things right, if you want to hang on to that secret sin, here's what you're going to do. You're going to silence the word of God. MIA at the small group. Hey, where's Bob? Bob's not here. I always use Bob. I'm so sorry, Bob. <laughs> Actually, I had Bob come up a couple weeks. Do you have to use me for the negative example? I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll find another name. But you come up missing a small group, and then preaching church don't sound so good. Why would you want to come into the presence of God and the preaching of the word in order to be convicted when there's no goal of repentance and restoration? But listen, God sends his word not to rebuke you. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. His word coming toward you is his kindness because through repentance, that opens the gateway to restoration. So we got to stay in proximity to the word of the Lord. Don't shut the door door to the prophetic word in Jesus' name. Amen. Keep the door open. The second thing that David did is he brought his brokenness to God. After the confrontation with the prophet, David actually wrote out a song, and we'll read a few verses of it. He wrote this song for all to see, for all to read. Here's the king of Israel, and he says, my sin is right here. Here's all the stuff. He didn't gloss over it. He didn't blame Bathsheba for tempting him. He didn't blame the weariness of his own life of being the king and being in so many battles. I just needed to break a little hall pass. He owned his sin. He recognized that he was the one that needed to come clean before God, unlike his predecessor, Saul. You see, Saul as well had some sin that disqualified him. And Saul also had a prophet come to him by the name of Samuel. The difference is this. 
when Samuel rebuked Saul for his sin, the first thing that Saul did is he denied it. And we live in that culture. We call sin problems, issues, struggles. Ah, you know, we want to just move it over here. It's not what the Bible calls it. And so Saul, first off, he goes, no, I didn't do it. And Samuel don't back off. He says, yes, you did. Here's what you did. And he goes, oh, then it was the soldier's fault. And it was the people's fault. And he blame shifts. Finally, on the third rebuke from Samuel, Saul says, okay, you got me. I'm busted. I sinned, but come with me and worship with me in front of all the people so I might look good in their sight. Saul was never sorry for what he did. He was sorry he got caught. David his heart was broken before the Lord because he knew he had sinned against God. And there's a chasm of difference in that. Here's what David wrote. He said, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sin and wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. He says something interesting here. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, he sinned against Bathsheba. He clearly sinned against Uriah the Hittite. He sinned against his wives. He sinned against his people. But first and foremost, he said, God, against you and you alone. And he says, you do not desire a sacrifice or I'd offer one. You don't want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. Oh God, listen closely. Here's what God wants from me, just my honesty, my brokenness. Sin creates brokenness. The failure will create shame and brokenness in your life. Here's the question. What do you do with your brokenness? David had the insight to realize God is not looking for bulls and goats on this one, okay? The context of bulls and goats is this. The, the order of the day is the shedding of blood of animals was given as a temporary atonement for sins. So you committed adultery, ah, here's five bulls on the altar, right? You cut somebody off in traffic with your chariot, here, God, have a goat. Goats and bulls. And we have our own version of goats and bulls, don't we? Right? People pray prayers like, God, if you just get me out of this one, if you just fix this one, I promise I'll go to church for the rest of my life, every Sunday. As if church was penance for sin, right? It's bulls on the altar. Or God, if you'll fix this one, if you'll, if you'll let the pregnancy test come back negative. Well, it's getting real up in here. Then God, I promise I'll tithe for the rest of my days. It's a goat. He doesn't want a goat. He doesn't want a bull. He wants your broken and contrite heart laid before him saying, God, I'm bringing you all my stuff. He'll not reject it. He won't despise it. It's irresistible. See, the nature of God is a heart of compassion. He loves like a father. You know, I raised two girls and they were brilliant and amazing and they never rebelled much. Sis, much more than Tasha. Tasha, you were the good daughter. <laughs> but it didn't matter what they did. If they came humbly, man, I, my first response, whatever they did really didn't matter. It was the heart response to, to that issue. And God just wants to know, I'm here. What do you do with your brokenness? Where, where do you take your sorrow? Because sin creates sorrow. A lot of people, they bury their sorrow, they mask their sorrow, they drink their sorrow away, they try to entertain their sorrow and they get numb and try to live comfortably numb. What do you do with your sorrow? Jesus says, I want you to bring it to me. 
Your sorrow serves a purpose. Your brokenness is a motivator to bring you to the foot of the cross. This verse in Second uh, Corinthians, look at this. For the kind of sorrow God wants you to experience, time out, highlighters, God wants you to experience sorrow. There is a godly sorrow, but it leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but the worldly sorrow, here it is, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. So if I don't bring my sorrow to the cross, it's going to produce death in my life. But if I bring the brokenness and the shame of that event and that pattern of sin and I run to Jesus, he says that kind of sorrow will produce repentance and now life will be your portion. What are you doing with your sorrow and where are you taking your brokenness? What do you say we come back to the foot of the cross, to the one who spread out his arms and took all shame and all sorrow and all punishment so that I could offload mine onto his shoulders he was bruised for our transgressions he was wounded for our iniquities the chastisement for our peace was laid upon him and by his stripes we are healed you can have peace of mind why because it was laid upon the shoulders of Jesus on the cross take your sorrow to the right place and the last one is this I'm gonna ask the band to come David refused to live at a distance from God now Lean in. There's a lie that many of you believe, and it's this. When I fall away for a long time, or when I, you know, sin like one of my top five sins, like 7.9 on my sin Richter scale, here's the lie. We actually, we still believe that God will forgive us, but we're not going to have the access we used to. It's like, okay, I'm a Christian, but I'm a Christian up in the cheap seats. I'm not on the field. It's like God's forgiven me, but he's not going to use me at the level he was before. It's like, okay, I, I believe that he'll forgive any sin. You're preaching it, okay, check. But I don't believe that he'll sit next to me and whisper my name, and I don't think I'm gonna hear his voice like I did in the early days. What a lie from hell. What a lie from hell. The voice of condemnation is not your heavenly father. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Listen, the same blood that was spilled on the cross to bring you close to God when you never even knew his name when you never walked with him, we were brought near by the blood of Jesus. That same blood will keep bringing you back closer and closer and closer. Why? Because the blood never loses its power. And the same blood that brought you from death to life, from sinner to saint, is the same blood that'll cause you to get back up every time you fall, if you'll run to him, if you'll refuse to live outside his presence. See, I don't think God is grading sins like we grade them. And yes, sin has consequences. But I don't think God is saying, adulterers in this section, murderers in this section, liars, okay, you can come, a white lie, you're front row. No, sin separates. Sin causes death. We must take it to the cross. It doesn't matter what it is. The power of the blood of Jesus will wash it clean and make you right in the sight of God. This is the gospel. Ephesians. But now you've been united with Christ Jesus once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood. And so David, his, his very song, his heart was this, I don't just wanna be forgiven, I wanna be back in the presence. I, I don't just wanna know my sins have been dealt with, I, I want communion again. You see, once you've experienced friendship with Jesus, intimacy with Jesus, You'll never be satisfied again to just have a, a form of religion that lacks passion and intimacy. So Psalm 51, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, 
That means make something from nothing. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I'll teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Check out this verse. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Here's what David wanted, what he desired from God. I want to be restored as a worshiper. Here's how you'll know if you're still carrying shame. You can't sing freely. You can't worship. There's something that says, what are you lifting your hand, you hypocrite? You know what you did last Tuesday? Like, oh, you're right. Stick it back here in my pocket. Just try to gimp through another service, you know. I'm telling you, when God puts a new song in your mouth, when he forgives you, your hands are gonna be in the air. Your voice is, he will restore the joy of your salvation. And isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we've always wanted? Is just to sit at his table and have intimacy with him? Listen, if David can recover from this kind of fall, you can recover from yours. If David can be restored after this season of sin, he can restore anybody that's watching right now, fully restore you to favor. Otherwise, his epitaph would have read def uh, differently. It would have said, David, a man with an adulterous heart. Here lie David, a man with a, a murderous heart. Or here's David, a man that was doing really well for a while, and then he tanked his life. But that's not how it reads, is it? 2,000 years later, New Testament shows up. And in the New Testament, it's written about David. He was a man after God's own heart. And here's this epitaph right here, Acts 13, 36. For David, after he'd served the purpose of God in his own generation, he died and was buried with his ancestors. Lean in for a final minute. If David made a comeback like that and served the purpose of God for his generation, you can serve yours. You can serve yours. You can get back up in Jesus' name, amen.